Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week. It's Monday, August 9th, 2021. We're excited to talk about all the fish. I'm Katrina Liebeck with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. I'm Guy Ero, a fish biologist and budding ranch hand. We've got a special guest with us today. We've got Angie Griska, who's a sport fish area biologist with the Alaska Department of Fish and Game. And we're hoping to nerd out about Arctic grayling with you today, Andy. Welcome. Great. Thank you. So we've previously talked about Arctic grayling. Uh, we talked with Joanne Bryant a little bit earlier this year and really kind of focused in on the cultural importance of this fish to indigenous communities here in Alaska. So today we're going to be focusing more on the biology of these amazing fish. This is just an iconic northern latitude fish that really can draw anglers into Alaska specifically to target them. They look kind of like a white fish, but almost like if you were to cross a white fish and a sailfish together, it would create this amazing looking fish. But could you talk us through a little bit more about what they look like, Andy? They're related to trout, salmon, and whitefish. They're all in the same family, the Salmonidae family. They have the large dorsal fin. It's uniquely colored. It has blues and sort of pinks and oranges and dots that are different colors. There's usually some orange, turquoise, pink kind of colors. It depends on the fish, which river they are. It might change slightly. Then the pelvic and pectoral fins, uh, particularly the pelvic fins, have really neat coloration and lines on there. And then as far as the body of the fish, it can range from sort of grayish to black, depending on which river they're in and which individual. But uh, as it goes down towards the belly, then you'll have usually like a kind of a, a golden line before it hits this whitish belly. Do we know what purpose that giant fin serves? And is it in both males and females of that species? They both have large fins. Sometimes the males, they tend to have larger dorsal fins than the females. There are females with large dorsal fins. So it's not the best way to try to identify what sex the fish is. But I think, and this was without any, nobody's done any research on this behavioral ecology, right? But I suspect it has more to do with communication. You know, they, they'll flare their fins like when other fish, like they're coming in for something to eat. Or if you're your lure or whatever, you may see one fish come in and be ahead of the lead and then as another fish comes in, the dorsal fin may flare up. Uh, same thing maybe when they're spawning. But again, nobody's really done a specific study on that. Yeah, it's cool. Fish actually do communicate. We think about other animals and, you know, they're a little bit more easy to kind of understand and hear that communication. But fish have a lot of neat behaviors that that do relate to that. The other question I had about their appearance is like their coloration. It's really unique with those like beautiful kind of iridescent, almost like purples and greens and blues. We don't, I don't really know if we have any other fish in Alaska or elsewhere, really, where it's super common. Do you know anything about that coloration and why they have that? Is that communication related to? Yeah, it's hard to say. Who knows why they went down this pathway with these kind of colors, but you know, brook trout have neat colorations of dots and mm -hmm. these fish hold their colors throughout the year. They don't really change for spawning the colors, not that I've noticed. Other thing is there's quite a difference, like in terms of colorations and patterns of the coloration, the dots or the stripes and the fins as you go across from Alaska into Northern Russia. And then there's other species of grayling in Russia and in Mongolia and such. So that they, those other species look similar, but different. So hmm. there's one that's like a yellow tailed grayling, the whole end of the tail is yellow. Yeah. And I mean, they vary the colors, you know, like different trouts have different coloration patterns. There's different species of grayling across Asia that have different coloration patterns. 
the Arctic grayling was the second species of grayling that I ever caught. I had, the first ones were over in Europe, uh, which are like the true grayling, Cymalis thymalis, and they don't have nearly the colors that these Arctic grayling have. They're usually darker on the body, and then the fin, it does have those striations and those dots and stuff, but they're almost always just kind of a, a plain red, and they'll still have the red sort of margin on the dorsal fin. But when I was first interacting with Arctic grayling up in Alaska, when you caught me, they really, they were kind of silvery with that purple sheen, and you had all those different colors on the dorsal fins, not just the reds. And it really, I wasn't expecting to see that after my initial interaction with the European graylings. Yeah, they are so beautiful. If you haven't seen them, you got to check them out. So here in Alaska, what's the range of these fish? And do they range down into other parts of North America? Can you just describe kind of their, you know, what area they cover briefly? They're throughout most of Alaska, and some it's not very well documented, but some of the southeast areas, particularly like the islands, don't have them. But like I know like the Stikeen River, if you go upriver into Canada, they're in the Stikeen. Basically, they're sort of limited in southeast and along the coastal areas of south central. There's some limitations on where they are, and then through Alaskan Peninsula and the Aleutian Islands. But for the most part, like 90% of the state, Arctic grayling are there. And then they go down into Canada and Montana and used to go into Michigan, correct? Uh, yep. They're in BC, Alberta. There's some remnant populations, Missouri drainage. And then in Michigan, they are extirpated. For the last couple of years, we collected spawning grayling here and then uh, spawn those grayling and for their hatchery back there. They're trying to reestablish populations in Michigan. So maybe in the near future, they'll have some Chena River Arctic grayling in those streams. Awesome. I know you work up in Alaska, but do you happen to know what the root cause of the extirpation out of Michigan was? I don't think anybody knows for sure, right? But generally speaking, probably was overfishing was one cause. Another one was all these rivers were located in forest. And at that time, in the late 1800s and early 1900s, they were still felling the timber and blowing it downriver during the spring freshet. Mm-hmm. That's when grayling spawns. So having a bunch of logs ripped through the spawning grounds probably wasn't a, a great thing. Plus, there was probably more debris that was covering up the spawning riffles. And then in addition to that, as the forests were no longer covering some of these rivers during the hot summer, there just wasn't enough protection from the sun. So I'm sure the rivers also became a little less hospitable. And then the final stroke was probably adding rainbow trout or brown trout to these streams that they uh, stopped from other places where they were. Those fish are not native to that area, so. So kind of like a double whammy of logging and then throw on some non-native species competition on top of that, and it made for a bad day for the grayling. Yeah, plus overfishing. We're talking like three or four whammies on them. The edge of their range is usually like where they have the hardest time holding on, right? It's not probably not their prime habitat, but it's like they can still exist there and then when you take away some of the things that made it just enough able to live in the habitat, then and then you throw in other fish to compete and predate upon them, it just it's, yeah. it's too much, you know. Those are common common whammies for fish. Yeah, they're kind of teetering on the edge in the periphery. Yeah, you know, like here the Chena River, for example, and several other rivers. I mean, there were times back in the 1950s they tried to establish rainbow trout populations here in the interior, and they were viable fish, and they never. They couldn't survive here. The conditions here and the rivers here don't allow for a rainbow trout to successfully reproduce. 
So these fish are considered resident species. Can you talk to us a little bit more about their movements? We understand you've done some radio tagging and we're just curious, how extensive are their movements? Why are they moving? What are they trying to accomplish, I guess, throughout the year in terms of, you know, what they need to survive? So they are what I would call seasonally migratory. They remain in fresh water their, their whole life. So unlike salmon, which are anadromous or, or lampreys, which are anadromous, these fish will remain in these freshwater river systems their whole life, but they do migrate seasonally. And that's because in the summer, these fish are usually looking for the best feeding spot that they can find. And some fish are just a little more adventurous in terms of their migrations. Some may only migrate 10 miles, but some may migrate 100 miles upstream just to find a good spot to feed. And what they're looking for as adults is cooler water temperatures and a higher rate of drifting insects. They're mostly eating insects, but they will eat other things as well, you know, like voles and they'll eat small fishes too, like migrating um, smolts. The main thing is in the summer, they're looking for a good area that's cooler, provides a lot of good food. Those that tend to be way up river and those spots during the winter become inhospitable. So they'll tend to move downstream in the fall to overwintering areas where they get a stable, slow flow of water that has relatively well oxygenated, has a good overhead cover that would be ice. So what that does is they don't have to expend much energy while they're sitting there all winter long. None of the insects that they like to eat are moving either. So there's basically they have about six months under the ice where they're just sitting there. And then those overwintering areas are fairly close to usually to their spawning areas. So they'll make a short migration just before the ice breaks up and after the ice breaks up to spawning areas. And after they're done spawning, they'll immediately migrate back up to the summer feeding areas. So the eggs need approximately 10 days to three weeks maximum of gestation in the gravels there before they hatch. And that's for those young a year grayling. For the adults that had spawned them, they'll move upriver again. Like I said, they want to go to the cooler water areas, and that's where their metabolism requires a little bit cooler water. These migrations can be up to 300 miles in a year for a particular individual. Yeah, and that, that's impressive, and it really kind of highlights the importance of habitat connectivity and keeping that connectivity. And I know that, you know, there's a lot of things that can happen to affect that, like road culverts and stuff like that. So, I mean, yeah, just fish, a, a lot of fish need to move like that throughout the year to get what they need. So that, that connectivity piece is super important. Everyone likes to focus on anadromous fishes, but podomadromous fishes need love too, right? Absolutely. They're more interesting. So you mentioned that those larger ones are going to be moving upstream to access those habitats where they're going to be feeding. So if you're fishing for a grayling, it's important to probably take some of those considerations in terms of what they're doing during certain times of year. Do you have any tips for folks that are interested in fishing for these fish? Sure. I mean, you know, if you're speaking here in Fairbanks, we're thinking of like the Chena River. In the springtime, there are quite a few larger grayling. They're all throughout town. If you were fishing in July, June, July, and August, you're going to have to go way up Chena Osprey's Road and go way up to the upper river to start catching fish. They're, you know, say 14 to 18 inches big. They, they are only up there. They are not down here. <laughs> Uh, there's several different river types here that uh, influence where they go. So this is kind of a, it's been termed a rapid runoff river, but basically it's just a drainage system that fluctuates with, you know, rainfall or precipitation. And it tends to 
be slow and meandering in the lower river and it gets warm and it's cooler and, and more swift up river and it's better habitat. But, you know, when you look at uh, some of these other rivers on the south side of the Tanana, so for example, be the Delta Clearwater River, you know, the water is about four degrees Celsius. The water is crystal clear. The river runs for about 20 miles and it's really productive for insects. And it's also very cool water for these fish. So it's like creates the perfect condition. So there's many fish that go spend the summer in the Delta Clearwater River, but in the winter, they'll exit the Delta Clearwater River and overwinter in the Tanana River. And then in the spring, they'll go to the Good Passer River, which is very similar to the Chena River here. And they'll spawn in the lower river. And when they're done, they return over to the Delta Clearwater River. They're just, you know, these fish figure out the good areas to go live. And um, so you get pretty extensive migrations or differential migrations, depending on the individual that you tag. We've been talking about these fish, and we've pretty much only said that they live in rivers and streams. Is that true? Or do you ever see any of these guys hanging out in some of the larger lake systems? They do live in lakes as well. Yes. They think of them mostly as river fish, and that is true to a certain extent but nonetheless they're they're very adaptable to the the situations here if they don't find you know like as an example if they don't find exactly what they what you might think of as the preferable spawning habitat they will just spawn wherever wherever they can find it they're spawning kind of grassy muddy areas they can't find what they're looking for and they know that the the eggs will hatch there and you know the success might be a little less but they're going to also hatch probably a lot quicker it's probably going to be even warmer they might be done in 10 days and once the fry hash they're fine you ever eat any of these grayling yes okay so i got a question for you then i was reading somewhere and i don't know if it's true or not but that when linnaeus coined the name thymalis for the genus of the graylings. He did that because he thought that they had a, a scent of thyme to the flesh. And I was wondering if you've ever experienced that in your cooking grayling, you ever picked up a filet or something and be like, hmm, it <laughs> smells like thyme. No, I can't say. I don't, I know that story and I don't know. They certainly have their own little smell, whatever it is, it's different, but it's, I don't know if I would <laughs> characterize it as thyme. How would you characterize it? I don't know. Maybe it's the way I was cooking them, you know? How, how do you like to cook them? You got a favorite recipe? Sure. You know, you can flay uh, them and take the skin off and do a little beer batter that makes some red curry sauce and top that over that with rice. Yeah, that's pretty good. Or good. you got the smaller fish, got them and then uh, scale them and score each side and fry each side. That's really good. What, you haven't tried it yet? I haven't. No, I haven't. I think no. I've had it. I think I've had it once. I don't remember it tasting like time either. <laughs> I ate a lot of salmon. <laughs> well, it's been great talking to you today, Andy, about Arctic grayling. Um, you are a wealth of information about them. Super cool. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Okay, we hope you all get out and enjoy all the fish, including the grayling. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebich, and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for this series is Citizen Racecar, produced and story edited by Charlotte Moore, production management by Gabriella Montaguin, post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Region, Office of External Affairs. As the service reflects on 150 years of fisheries conservation, we honor 
thank, and celebrate the whole community. Individuals, tribes, the state of Alaska, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish.